So just like can you introduce yourself for the audience. I can do it a second time since this is our second episode. Nice. Uh, my name is Jess Ellis. I'm a PT. I've been working in either professional sports or professional athletes for over a decade. Um, I've worked at Exos. I've worked at, in the NBA. I'm starting uh, a continuing education company called Rehab Code, which is uh, return to play and uh, a little bit more sports rehab specific. So I've been busy with that. So um, being at Exos, being at like Trailblazer, like uh, which part of like the that uh when you're at Exos, which part of like being at Exos do you enjoy the most, and which part of like being in the NBA do you enjoy the most? Exos was always fun because there was there was just a mixture of athletes you know you could and, and general pop so it was a good blend of many different cases so it really allowed you to learn quite a bit because it was there was no there wasn't as much redundancy which requires you as either a pt or strength coaches you learn to talk to your athletes to understand their sport because you may be working with a you know an, an NFL player, and then you're following up with a collegiate baseball pitcher, very different sports, very different uh, demands to their body. So it just, in a way, it requires you to be a little, a little bit more humble because you're going to try to hear the athlete out and gain as much information from their perspective. Um, so yeah, the mixture was great. Um, the coaches nutrition all of them are amazing over there so the teams are always fun when you're over at exos and uh, i managed the five facilities so i got to see the uh, difference in staff and culture now exos is kind of pulled back and i only think they have three um legacy facilities now um la and san diego are no more but again it was nice to see the subcultures within the culture of exos um so that was that was pretty solid at Exos. And then in the NBA, um, everything's amplified. The pressure, the energy, the expectations, the um, limelight, all of that is changed because you're in in a market that a lot of people are watching. So um, I enjoyed that as well. We were very successful, made the playoffs every year and uh, got to work with some amazing athletes and it's much different because you're addressing different injuries because it's much more specific to basketball. So I was able to hone in on injury prevention and, and understanding what, where we could mitigate some risk. Um, and we had a smaller staff as well. So we had the small staff in the league, which then required all of us to kind of step up and have a lot of autonomy within our roles. Nice. Nice. So, um, Last time we talked, we were we were discussing about like the tests you would do for like different environment, different sports. So today I kind of want to start with like the spine. Uh, like a few months ago, there's gonna there's like tons of discussion about like uh spinal engine theory. So first off, I want to start start with. For like athletes like um 
American football or like basketball, there's like jumping, landing, speed, that kind of stuff. So, um, how exactly do we like keep our spine healthy? Well, you know, it is in any sport you should be addressing core and lumbar strength. Um, and when you look at the sport, you need to look at basically the demands of ground reaction forces and how they're emitted through the body. So you're going to look at the spine a little differently from an NFL player versus an NBA. And that's just not a, not from a anthropomorphic profile because right. NBA is much longer, slender players. So they have different moment arms and levers than let's say the NFL player. But then secondly, the plane surface is also different. So in an NBA athlete, they are much more vertical base, though there is a lot of uh, horizontal deceleration that happens within that sport as well. But there's just more vertical loading that happens. And with that longer spine, um, one thing I really look at for an NBA player is um, can they can they absorb load th through their knee? And if they can't, things start to be problematic. And what happens is it travels up to the hip and the relationship between hip and low back, there's, they're so close in proximity and there's so much uh, interrelationship between these two junctions or complexes that if one goes south, the other one's going to go very quickly. So an example would be if you have low back pain, you may start to limit the way that you walk, which then will or the hip flexor may hold you in a protective pattern, which then limits hip extension. So it started as low back pain and then resulted in restricted hip. And then now you're having a multi-joint issue, or it could be vice versa, where the hip is irritated and then it limits the amount of extension, which then allows the lumbar spine to extend more. And now you're now you're dealing with maybe overloading of the of the low back. So between the two, it's almost like you have to address both. Um, and then for the NFL player, there's just much more contact related, more uh, overload dynamic load to where they're trying to pull somebody off or make a move. And, you know, that's more commonly related to a strain. So a muscular or a maybe a ligament sprain per se. So Basketball, I think more overload or kind of osseous uh, injuries like facet uh, because of the uh, the vertical base and then the specificity of football is maybe more muscular, but that's just a uh, a general thought. I can't hear you. So there are like tons of video on the YouTube or like on Instagram. There's like uh NFL like running back, wide receiver, like squatting super heavy, like uh six hundred pounds of like back squat. Do you think that's gonna cause some like stiffness or like some like like micro damage in their spine that affects like um 
the overall performance? Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to say a blanket statement of if it's good or bad. Um, it is what's the lifting age of the athlete? Can they um, comfortably go through a movement pattern with a, a heavy load and why are you doing it? So what's the uh, risk first reward? Um, you know, you don't have to max out these guys or, you know, really push it, especially within season where you could get at least a minimal dosage effect at a, a smaller weight. But in general, these, these guys are very adaptable athletes and they're super strong. Um, so I, would just base it on each individual and if they can demonstrate the capacity to load their spine. Now, can you modify range of motion to limit likely chances of an injury? Yes. Um, you know, if you do a, a, a partial range of motion squat, so you're not going past 90, then in theory, you may not have a, a pelvic rock where you can fall into some flexion and then, or a butt wink is what we call it. And that can happen and that results in possibly some disc irritation or a facet problem. Um, but again, you just got to be, you know, smart with your training and have a reason why you're doing things. Now, the NBA, if you've ever worked with an NBA athlete, they don't really understand how to um, go into a deeper squat. A lot of times they have um, adaptive changes to their ankles because they've jumped so much that there's an osseous block to the front of the ankle, which means they limit dorsiflexion. Um, so in that case, much of that depth is restricted distally and you're not going to be able to go as far. So you may have to fall into some plantar flexion to the ankle to then allow them to go into deeper depths. Um, but in general, these guys jump from their ankles and knees and they don't really fall into much of a deep hip pattern, either hinge or squat. So if you're going to train it again, understand why you're doing it. Um, one thing I found with NBA guys, um, they have such long spines. So if you do like a zercher squat, I, I look at that squat as more of a core exercise, then let's load up the system with weight. Um, and in doing so, I think you can prevent some low back injuries. So a zercher squat, um, lighter weight, but look at it more like a dynamic core exercise than like, I want to really train hip extensors. If you're going to do that, do a, do a barbell squat or a trap bar deadlift. Nice. So, um, oftentimes we see like power lifters or like, uh, guys in the weight room, they squat really heavy. They deadlift really heavy. They probably have like a flat back. So is there like any exercise or like movement we can do to like, uh, at the same time, help our athlete to have like a, a healthy spine, have the curve to like absorb the energy and, and at the same time, help our athletes to like get stronger, produce higher force. Sure. So when I look at athletes or if I train their spines, let's say they have low back or something that leads them to a rehab case, I break up low back training into three components, motor control, uh, general patterns, and then um, reactive. 
and reactive is much more either transferring energy through a med ball or absorbing force through some sort. So you, I think you blend between the three and it, it, it changes the way you approach treatment as they go further down the rehab, maybe do less motor control and you do more power based reactive exercises. But um, for us to just do general patterns, like a, a loaded hinge is only going to get you so far. You still have to be able to absorb and, you know, release energy. And that's um, where you can kind of get more interesting exercises that they can, um, again, catch weight, throw weight, um, fall into different patterns and, and catch themselves. Um, so that's, you know, I don't know when you talk about the flat back with, I'm assuming, are you talking with like a deadlift? Yeah. Yeah. A flat back. I mean, that is that neutral or is that flexion? What's your, what's your, what's your talk on, what's your thoughts on that? Because if it's neutral, you're fine. I think that's going to depends on like, uh, depends on the person, but most of the time I, I saw most, I, I'm not going to say everyone, but most of, most of the athletes, they do deadlift. There's probably a little bit flexion. Yeah. Now, are we talking like an like an actual deadlift, or are we talking about a trap bar deadlift? Actual deadlift. Okay. So, yeah i I don't overly try to cue them very much. I just see the 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 amount of range of motion that they have, which will likely be limited by their hamstring depth or their flexibilities. The thing that will usually restrict it. And then, if it's a partial deadlift based on mobility restrictions, you can train it um, through that. Now, if you want to gain more, you can do eccentrics with lighter weight to, to get some dynamic lengthening to the posterior chain. Um, but I don't cue too much. I don't really overanalyze spine position. I just, a lot of times with a deadlift, I just make sure that their, their cervical spine is in a neutral position because that will usually mirror the lumbar position as well. Cool. So, um, after the spine, I want to discuss about the hip. So when um, when athletes run, the hip's going to be undulated. There's going to be a little rotation in the hip. So let's say what ha what if uh, they already have like one side of the hip is like more tilted backward and the other side is more tilted front to the front. What And that's probably going to affect like how how much they can lift their knee and how much they can push off from the ground so what are your thoughts on this uh, or and like how would you do some corrective exercise for the hip well <clears throat> if we're looking at structural nuances of asymmetry the first question is is, is asymmetry bad and is it something that we need to try to, and I hate the word correct or correctives, because I just think that that puts the athlete in a passive role, like they're broken or they're not um, a fully capable human. So uh, when I look at that, I said, does it need to be changed? 
Secondly, is it a specific adaptation based on the sport? If it is, then I'm not changing it. If it is a problem from a muscle recruitment, then we can kind of figure out why that's an issue. So if there is an imbalance, how much of it is problematic versus just a natural adaptation. So that would be an area where I would, would want to train and, and maybe work on symmetry if possible. Um, I've never felt like anybody has had l- enough limited hip range of motion to really affect running. And if so, it probably would be hip extension, not hip flexion. So um, that's something that I would look at just because you want to make sure um, if somebody is heavy, heavy lordotic to their lumbar spine, they're more prone to a hamstring strain because the posterior, the lack of posterior pelvic tilt. So now that hamstring is always on a lengthened position comparative to, let's say, in a neutral spine. So, um, we could train all we want, but I don't know how much that carries over to the actual action that we're trying to change. So that's just one thing I want to like, keep at least honest is like, we can try our best with a lot of these things, but we don't really know, um, if they actually change the pattern. Nice. There's an example example was there was a study done for runners and they, had knee pain and they went six weeks with, um, isolated hip strengthening and they were very due diligent and, and they looked to see if anything changed. And after six weeks, uh, the running, though their hips were stronger from a uh, handheld dynamometer, their, their running pattern was the same. So even if you do make some isolated change from a quantitative stance, it doesn't mean it's going to change the pattern that you're trying to um, improve yeah or it's gonna make it worse true yeah yeah so um like last time we discussed are you gonna like are you gonna do or are you gonna put some like tests for the spinal health in your test in the nba or like in the football player yeah you should um especially in the nba i mean low back is a a problem that can, um, I call it, they're sleeping dragons because they, they, uh, once they're activated, it's tough to settle down just because of the, the moment arm and the long levers that these players are in. If it's good, it's good. But if they do have back pain, it usually takes a little bit longer for them to recover. And that's similar to like a shoulder injury. And again, that's because the length of their arms. So it puts that complex also in a, disadvantage so yes you should screen the low back and hip um i would say just getting some general range of motion assessment of the hip and spine um i think what i found anecdotally is if there was a notable difference in hip internal rotation if you were looking at both if there was asymmetry with limited internal rotation, the side that was limited was going to be possibly an area for that side of the low back to be aggravated. Um, and that's because likely when they go into a squat or in a defensive position, they go into flexion, which then in- includes internal rotation. If they have limited internal, then it might result to go up the chain into the low back. Um, so that's something that I noticed 
So range of motion is important. Um, I like to look at uh, when I have them go into like a plank position, everyone really likes to see how long they can hold it. Sometimes I like to do repeated cyclical positions where they have to fall into neutral each time. So they come up, get into the position that I want, then set back down. I want you to do that six times. And if they can't find that position, we have a motor moron. We have some neuromuscular issues that they don't know where they live in space. So th at that point, then I may have them do smaller durational holds, but more reps for them to find that position that I want them in. Nice. Cool. And then one, one other plank position that I have them go into, it's, it's a, uh, kind of like with yoga, it's like a Cobra position where you drop your hips into extension, but as they fall into extension, I I'm watching their back to where their spine is from neutral into an, into an extended lordotic position. And there's that transition. And I find that point where they fall into it. I pull them slightly into some flexion and then I have them hold that position. And I, I take a time, uh, baseline of that because that right there is their, I call it their pivot point. Cool. So besides like plank or besides like using Cobra, do you like, uh, functional movement screen or like they they start with like uh lying on the back then doing some plank or like high knee and then standing so besides like plank or like a cobra do do you use other exercise for like core and overall low back pain exercises or screens uh exercises sorry yeah um yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> to be honest with you, I try to simplify my lumbar um, training to um, they either need to produce force, they either needed to produce force fast, or they need to um, show endurance or work capacity. So if I want them to just, if I want the paraspinals to be at a high engagement, I'm going to just have them deadlift and dose it accordingly you can do like a mid-thigh isometric pull to see where they're at maximally and then you can kind of go from there um, one nuance that i've done is for nba guys i don't like to do a mid-thigh isometric pull because they're they have such long spines and they can hurt themselves by doing that so instead i have them in a deeper squat position and i just have them do a squat pull from the ground and then I get my objective number there, and then we can kind of dose some loading from that number. Um, so deadlift is a, a primary um, focus. Now, trap bar deadlift versus deadlift, I prefer the deadlift position, um, but people interchangeably use that. I'm not saying that I don't do both. It's just if I'm going to train, let's say the quads and glutes are probably train more trap bar deadlift. If I want to specifically hit lumbar, then it's maybe more of a general deadlift. Um, uh, and then rotatory. So being able to own it with, you can do some anti-rotation work. You can do some general rotation through, you know, you can do some loaded stuff. And then 
then you transition into some power specific movements with med balls or even cables. Um, and then, like I had mentioned before, how do they absorb through their knee? So if they can't absorb through their knee with deceleration exercises, then they're likely going to have a hip pathology at some point. Oh. Because if you can't load through the quad, it's just going to be a spike of ground reaction forces that goes up to the hip and you're dealing with something that's maybe more labral or cartilage issues in the future. Cool. So for those like like the those NBA guys, they have like longer spine, longer torso. Yeah. It's gonna it's gonna be harder for like harder for coaches, harder for you guys to like teach or like train the traditional like deadlift position. So is there like like something you need to do before like uh teaching these? Yeah, I mean a lot of times you see see these NBA NBA guys that cannot hinge. They they don't understand the pattern. So um you may need to do some assisted work with a band where you're pulling them into some hinging. So getting them to understand that movement. And then a lot of these guys learn with speed, like they're just fluid movers. So if you can get them to do a, a kettlebell swing properly, they can kind of own that pattern. And that might be the first thing that you get them to do, even before you do like a straight isolated deadlift where, you know, you would assume that's easier to learn because it's, it's not as movement derived, but these guys love that fluidity of movement. So even like a kettlebell swing with might be a, a a preliminary exercise that you have these guys do with a hinge so like you mentioned that um most of the guys or like most of, of the nba guys they you're gonna look at like how their knee gonna flex or how their knee gonna absorb So um, a lot of times, like you mentioned, you're gonna like look at the knee, how, 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 how they land and how they move their knee. So that's gonna affect the force from the ground to the knee to the a uh, hip. So um, since that, why just why don't we just train like like you mentioned trap bar deadlift instead of like traditional deadlift? We can probably just to how to like properly load it through like uh knee and hip so we don't have to like uh teach them how to like or teach them like the traditional deadlift yeah so i would say my philosophy when i'm training let's say an nba athlete if i want to load their system and that's let's say 80 percent one rep max I'm going to do a trap bar deadlift. It's easier on their system, uh, less chance of an injury. The uh, center of mass to the weight is much easier on the spine. Um, and they usually understand how to do that. So if I'm clearly just wanting to, to load the, the whole system, I'm going to do the trap bar deadlift. Yes, uh, the standardized or tradition or traditional deadlift is much more posterior chain. So if I'm going to, again, address hamstring strength or lumbar strength, 
I may go less weight on a traditional deadlift, but it's because I'm changing my focus. And I also know that this man has a long spine, so I may either modify the range of motion or modify the weight, but still getting enough adequate dosage to do the things that I want, which is hopefully adapt the spine and adapt the hamstrings. So in general, if I want to stress the whole system, hex bar or trap bar deadlift, if I want to work on deceleration, you can do some variance with the trap bar. You can do like some drops, some eccentric drops, but important, you know, you can, you can do that in, in other fashions as well. Deceleration lunges, you know, some landing techniques, um, or just get them on an isokinetic dynamometer or a knee extension machine and literally just load that eccentric load, which is probably the best way to isolate the quad. Nice. I love your approach. So want to, want to, want to jump to the spine or the knee question. I want to continue the conversation we did about from last time, like you mentioned, uh, creating your own testing. So, um, I know we've discussed this before, but still, like, for, like, NFL player, there's going to be a lot of, like, Excel, DCL, change of direction. So, based on these, like, uh, what kind of tests would you do for a physical therapist to see their athlete's situation right now? Uh, so, if, if you're dealing with anybody that does multi-directional I think you got to look at each plane of movement. So how do they look with their lateral lunge? How do, how do they look with landing, not just your standard, your standing, uh, your standard box drops or where you're maybe pivoting and having them to absorb and then go from there. So like a depth jump or a drop jump. Um, I think the other things that we look at, um, a 505 test, which is really heavily, um, focused on deceleration. Um, and then you can do some variants of that where it may not be a 180 degree cut. So NFL, you're going to see more 180 degree cuts than in basketball or not many, not many times in a basketball game where they're going to have to do that outside of maybe a turnover where they have to rapidly change the other direction. So in so you can change the angles based on the sport. So basketball, it might be a 90 degree cut. It may be a, you know, a 75 degree cut where they're coming backwards because they're accelerating. Now they have to stop because their opponent is going forward. So now how does it look with their ability to, to get back? Um, so yeah, that's cutting drills. You can look at just general footwork. You know, you can do some ladder drills just to see the the capacity. Um, that does not relate to true actual sport, but it also is nice just to see their their neuros their neurology and how it reacts. Um, so those those are some general things I look at. Great. So um, besides like the cuts, do you? Do you like watch the film like in for individual athletes? I do watch film. I think everybody as a professional, if they work with the elite of the elite, you got to be prepared. So um, I watch to see how they play because every player is different. Some are elastic. 
some are not, some are aggressive in the way they play, some are smart and they don't use as much energy. Um, some of them are older, younger. So there's a lot of variables to look at. So yes, I think you should watch the uh, the actual player. And then you talk to them. You really break it down. You interview them. You see where they really feel like they're limited. Um, and not just words. It's good for them to actually demonstrate it. So that's why I really like to have conversation with athletes, either on the field or on the court where we are talking and they're like, all right, you said you feel it limited here. Let's kind of go through that pattern. And it's much more of an organic intuitive process. And, and secondly, then you, you get a lot of buy-in because the player sees that you're engaged and you want to know what they're feeling. Clearly I'm never going to be an NBA player in NFL, but I do get some credibility and respect if I'm actually directing my focus to what they're feeling, because you can come off as very arrogant as a practitioner, because you know, biology, you know, anatomy, you know, all this stuff, we're a bunch of nerds, but we got to listen to the jocks because they're, uh, they're, they're telling us good information. We just got to be humble enough to listen to them. I like this. I like this. So, um, want to dive deeper and I know we discussed like how you plan or how you're going to, um, design the test for like the NBA guys. So this time, this time I want to dive a little bit deeper about like, how would you design tests for overall like football players? So football players, I've never worked in the actual professional setting of football. I've worked only in the off season with football. Um, so I think in general, the problem with the NFL is the numbers. The NBA, I only had 15 guys. So I can get really specific and really lock in on my, my, um, my system. There's a lot of NFL guys, which means one, there's a lot more to do, but also there's a lot more data. So I think in the long term, like a longitudinal aspect, I think you can get better results and you get you can specifically change your system because of the data that you've collected. But with the NFL, I'm probably going to go much more general view because then sheer numbers. So how do they squat? How do they hinge? What's their hip range of motion? What's their um, ankle range of motion? Um posturally with their low back versus their hips. Um, then I'd like to get isolated measures of quad and hamstring because of uh, more hamstring in the NFL, see how strong they are. Um, I'd also like to get peak uh, force production to the calf just because the uh, chances of an Achilles or a calf injury as well. Um, and that's kind of the snapshot. And then you can maybe do some standardized tests on the field where everyone has to do the same thing. Um, technology is advancing. So there's things like Plantiga, which I'm, I'm an advisor on that team. Um, and you can have them wear a device, an AI device, where it tells you the symmetry of the limbs. So if you were to put that in everyone's shoe and get at least six practice data points to then when they roll out into the season, you have six to eight data points, you know, the symmetry of that player. So if they come later through the season and you see there's a 5% change, 
you can feel more confident because you've had enough data to show that these are his tendencies. He's a 5% more on the right. Now he's 10% more on the right. Uh, clearly there could be something going on with the left knee or the left ankle or whatever. Right. So I think the, uh, the advancement, the advancement of testing is, is mirroring the advancement of technology. Well, so, uh, since you brought like brought up like technology, is there going to be difference between like when you see, when you use like, uh, stuff like force plate for like, um, NBA players and the metrics you're going to look at when you test the NBA players and the metrics you're going to look at when you, uh, see like the football players, is the metrics going to be different from a physio, physio therapist standpoint? Yeah, I think so. Uh, everything's different with um, the nuanced sport. So metrically, if you're looking at, are, are you talking about like workload data? Yeah. Specifically? No, yeah. like everything, all the metrics you're going to see. Yeah, I mean, every, yeah. If you're in the setting, you better, you better change to that to that niche of a, of an athlete. If you're not, you're not doing your job. Um, it's not like you're going to be, if you're in NFL, you're not going to be seeing any NBA guys. So, you know, it's nice maybe cross pollinate and maybe talk to some practitioners on that side and take some of that information and then absorb it into your system. But um, really, and truly it needs to be specific to the sport that you're working. So every metric would be different. Workload metrics would be different. There's, you know, mileage changes the um amount of deceleration versus acceleration so for an nfl guy let's say a skilled player i'm going to be you know more engaged on the acceleration capacity of an athlete in the nba these guys don't have to accelerate as much and if so it's only maybe two steps um their sport is much more driven by stopping efficiently and verticality and landing so those would be specific uh, workload metrics I'd look differently. So NFL, I'd look more for physiological workload metrics, and then I'd probably hone a little bit more attention on um, mechanic, uh, um, mechanical workload, which is more, more of a reflexive of the uh, deceleration uh, variables. Nice. But so that's just from workload. I mean, I mean, you can break it down to screening as well. I mean, it, it can get very deep. Cool. So uh, there are more like more and more technology in like sports science and like uh, heal, like helping athletes recovery. Overall, like, um, do you think that it helps nowadays? It helps coaches more or, or it kind of like, kind of like um main coaches rely on these technology or rely on uh the data instead instead of like losing like the coaching coaches eye or like the the moving we should be more focusing on specifically to the nba i don't know about the nfl but as we continue to grow our the stabs and staffs in the league, you'd expect to get 
better results. But what you're seeing is there's more injuries in baseball and in, in the NBA. So the question is, is are we as smart as we, as we think we are? Um, the other thing is, is are we overemphasizing workload and maybe creating this babying of an athlete where we're softening them up and giving them too much information and that's leading to more games missed. So uh, I do think there's like a, clearly there's a transition right now in sports um, and it was much different in the nineties for the NBA. You don't see as many guys hurt. So, um, but the gameplay is also much faster. So with more velocity, there's more injuries and that's same with the NFL. So um, if I could understand those nuances, I'd be a very rich man. Um, but instead I don't, and I'm just trying to be honest and figure out what's the best way to make a few small changes to influence the team. So, yeah, that's my thoughts on that. Cool. Cool. So, uh, since they're like, like you mentioned, there's more and more injuries in the NBA or like in the baseball, um, what do you think are the next big thing that coaches or therapists should be focusing on? Um, I think the first thing a, a therapist should say is, have you ever played any other sports when you were a young child, a young kid? And if they said, no, I actually just played baseball all my life or no, I just, I just hooped. Um, they're clearly very specific to one sport, which means their body has been specific to one form of load, which means we got to, we got to be more aware of the things that could go wrong. So that'd be, uh, one element is where is their capacity of athleticism and how early was it started? So sports specificity is what we'd be speaking of. Um, and then what was, what was the additional to that question? Sorry. Um, like, What's like, what's, what's the next big thing for like, um, physical therapists or like, uh, uh, performance coaches? Um, I think we all just need to get along. Um, and there's been some encroachment on, on turfs when really there should just be a continuum. It should not be, um, this kind of delineation where one steps over to the next that being said there are physical therapists that are feeling more comfortable with strength and conditioning type of roles and i think as a profession we still need to honor the other side and make sure that we're not overstepping our boundaries because you can't be good at everything i don't care how smart you think you are um I would advise any PT that wants to be in sports to find a high level strength coach and not to collaborate with that individual, actually seek him or her out as a mentor, as in you are here and I am here and I need to learn from you. Um, and I don't think a lot of physios or PTs do that. Um, but I think you get a lot farther along in your career and just understanding sport if you would do that. Um, and then on the other end, strength coaches are becoming much more um, reconditioning or 
hey, we're going to live in this in-between world of return to play, um, which is fine. I think they have a role. Both of them do. But PTs have a great understanding, especially high-level PTs and trainers. And I'm going to throw ATCs in as well. Um, they have a good understanding of pathology and loading and what are the things from a medical lens that you should do. And that's in essence why I created from, I'm going to do a pitch here, Rehab Code, and I've, I'm teaching a course called Reconditioning, which is open up for strength coaches, trainers, and PTs, because I don't think any one practitioner owns that world. Instead, I think we need to communicate and learn and understand the nuances of each person. Now, in that course, it's much more from a medical lens, which is coming from my background, but I think strength coaches and you know individuals that are on the performance side would actually um, take a lot of benefit from that because they could enhance their role as well. Nice. You have like a weekly email for uh, discussing like paper from rehab, right? Yeah. I love that. Not just rehab, performance. So it's called Weekly Decoding Newsletter. Yeah. Um, it's been well received. There's a lot of people that are on it. A lot of people click on it and, and read it, but it's um, it's one topic every week and it's a PT related article and then also a performance related article on the same topic. So you get a nice little breakdown of each um, each lens. And that's my job. I've been in both worlds. I've worked in the highest of the high for the NBA and Exos. And I feel there's a, an issue with the lack of understanding that each person, each practitioner has. And that's my goal is to get that to be more seamless. I got to tell you, like, I love the email. Hey, we're a, I got a fan. Yeah. And, and since you brought like, uh, you think that PT should have like, um, a mentor for like, from a coach, PT should find a coach for a mentor. Do you have like your own mentor? I mean, I've been blessed to work with high level strength coaches for the last close to 10 years. Um, and when I talk to them, it's, it's, I, I want to hear, I want to hear their thoughts. Um, so yeah, I think each person needs to find a high level strength coach. Um, you know, the low key one is the, uh, the veteran track coach <laughs> where they're not even really a strength coach. They've just, watched a lot of movement for years and years and years and they may not even have a formal title or education you can learn a shit ton of stuff from them as well agree totally agree with you i i hired a uh, a sprint coach myself to watch i watch me sprinting watch me do all types of like change of direction and and i personally learned a lot and that kind of like helped me Chain my athlete. Totally agree. There with you, you go. Yeah, I think uh, I think we should all get on a camera and not post it on Instagram. I think we should all get on a camera and see 
you in your work environment. So in case of a PT, if I have a, a client, I want to have a camera base. I mean, the, of course, the patient has to be okay with it, but I want to see how I communicate with them. I want to see my question sequencing. I want to see if I missed up on my exam because I got lazy. I mean, we all live with a lot of biases in life. And as long as you're aware of them, you can get better. If you're unaware of them, you're just going to be stuck in a rut. So, and then with a strength coach, it'd be good to see how, how good do you look with some of these movement demonstrations or how was my energy? How was my presence amongst the staff? Was I, was I able to take in the whole environment? Like sometimes you got to alter the way that you address an athlete just based on that immediate 10 second interaction. You got to be able to catch that and be like, Oh, this guy's down a little bit today. Like maybe I don't go at him as hard. So it's a psychology game. We all got to try to win it over. So nice, nice, nice. That's kind of like all the question I have for today. So for those like coaches, for for those of, like therapists, want to learn more about like the rehab code or like email you mentioned, where yeah. can they find it and where can they find you? So. It's easy. It's uh, Instagram is rehab under dash code um, websites, the rehab code.com. And um, I'm pretty active on it. So if you want to message me, I can get back to you very quickly. Um, let's see. LinkedIn is also useful. So those are kind of my three. I don't do Twitter. So I'm, I'm now I've never done Twitter. So now I'm starting to fall into threads like every, everyone else right now. Uh, <laughs> Until we find out who wins in the uh, cage match between Zuck and Elon. Nice. Nice. Nice.